last night, uh, Tanisara unfolded the uh, heart of the matter. On many occasions, when the Buddha was asked uh, what he taught, he would answer very uh, simply, I teach just two things, suffering and the ending of suffering. Sometimes people get the impression that Buddhists are a bit heavy, always sunk in their dukkha, stuck in the mud. But let it not be said that uh, Buddhists don't have their good news ending of suffering. Suffering and the ending of suffering. And one doesn't know the really realize from one's own experience the ending of suffering unless one knows intimately that experience of distress. Dis-ease. Pain. Not wanting to be with pain. Not wanting to be separated from the beloved, what is pleasing being thwarted, not getting what we want. Somehow not being able to find a resting place, a a home. Dukkha. The, the Buddha realized that this one really knows this experience and understand what perpetuates it, what gives rise to it. That, that there's no real true understanding of the ending of suffering, of well-being. I mean, he, that insight became clear after his uh, first failed Dharma talk. I always love hearing about that. When Tanisra told the story last night of his first Dharma talk, 
I am the victorious one. He knew, knew the deathless and proclaimed it, but the The fellow didn't know what could he do with it. Believe it, not believe it, didn't give him a path. He could have started out and he didn't do this. I like to think he could have started out. Come on, you can do it. Say it. Don't be bashful. I believe in Nibbana. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. Not putting your heart into it. Look, I believe in Nibbana. (sighs) You should have been born in Tennessee. (laughs) I believe in Nibbana. Now you're getting somewhere. And it's beautiful and important to have a faith, some sort of faith, that there is an ending of suffering. But if that's your only path, when the Buddha had his insight after his flop, <laughs> he, he, you don't jump to the top of the tree unless you're one hell of a kangaroo. You work where you're at. There is dukkha. He didn't say, you guys are suffering. (laughs) (laughs) I'm out of (laughs) here. He was, he learned. There is that experience which is hard to be with. There is dukkha. That there was an opening. I I can relate to that. There is birth, which is not easy. Don't really remember it, but my mom fell down some steps, was born premature, a month premature, and she used to say, Kitty Sorrow, I, I think I know why you became a monk. <laughs> I say, why is that, Mom? <laughs> that incubator was your first meditation cell. <laughs> <laughs> that could be, Mom. <laughs> That's why I feel comfortable in boxes. <laughs> But it wasn't, birth isn't easy for mom, the worrying. I don't think it was so easy in that incubator. Aging. This one, there's no doubt about it. Dukkha. And my dad, when he was 98, just getting out of bed, let me tell you, the slightest movement. He kept a sense of humor, but he knew... Mom used to say, what are you doing? Just trying to put one foot in front of the other. 
Dukkha, not easy. Death, not easy. Letting go of the body. Dad was ready. I'm ready. Happens in its own time. And he said, Kitty Sorrow, it's not easy to leave this world. Being with what we don't want to be with when you're exhausted or all ready to really get down to some business and pull a muscle in your leg. I mean, come on. Not now. Or the back. Or the myriad things that weren't invited. Or the moment, yesterday, yes, it was all in place, finally. How many Dhamma talks have I heard? Oh, but breaking through, peace. And then where did it go? Being parted from the love the peaceful. The disciples, we, you and I, can relate to that. There is dukkha rather than, you know, you guys are suffering so that we get shamed. It's a noble truth. People would uh, come and say to Ajahn Chah, oh, guys, I'm suffering and it's not right, it's not fair. And, Ajahn Chah would oftentimes smile and you think, God, what a masochistic teacher you have. Mm-hmm. And he would say, it's a noble truth. It was so, it's not a bad thing. It's actually maybe better because it's a dynamic. These teachings are dynamic. So maybe it's more appropriate to call them ennobling truths because the exhortation with this dukkha, there is dukkha and it needs to be what? Understood. Stood under. Open to. So it doesn't help to hate it. Okay, if we hate it, that's another thing to work with. But uh, we, we remember it's an ennobling truth, not a bad thing. It's a portal, a gateway, sacred gateway. Okay, that gate goes a couple of ways. Can be a gateway to perpetual blaming, project it all out onto some group, some person, some caste, some class, some color, some religion, or to God, or some people just throw it into themselves, use it as a reason I shouldn't be here. Yes, dukkha can perpetuate a separation. But it can also be a portal home to the divine, to the sacred. And the, these 
heart of the matter, these, these precious reflections, rather than just things that we put in our pocket. Okay, I've got the noble truths. Suffering, the origin, cessation, and the path. What's the next teaching? The higher teaching. Don't you got any tantras in there? Or Come on, I've done this retreat three times. I'm waiting for the next one. <laughs> Don't hold back. Buddha said, look, what I know is like the, all the leaves in the forest. What I'm emphasizing, what I am teaching, and he picked up is this handful of leaves. Just this much. It's important. Why am I teaching it? Because it will liberate you. Take you home. It's not that all other knowledge is, is no good. It's true. Dukkha needs to be open to, understood. As we then open to it, then there's a possibility of recognizing how it's fed, how it's sustained, how it's perpetuated, how it's originated. What causes it? Then we start to see this grasping, this holding on, this craving, this this wanting to keep, to own, to have it be this way. And, And also another kind of wanting is wanting something to be gone. Wanting and not wanting. And then wanting to become something, to find a home, to be this, this success, or this happiness, or this feeling, or this situation. Yes! Why is that the origin of suffering? Well, when, when one takes the time to open to what is not easy to be with, there's the opportunity to then get to know the nature of phenomenon, the nature of reality. Like this Dharma talk, one might like it or not like it, be interested or not interested, but it sounds like a thing, Dharma talk, give adjectives to kitty sorrows, Tuesday morning instruction talk. But if we go a closer we'll realize that it is anicca. It's not what it appears to be. Every sound, every word, every phrase, 
as we actually get close to this thing, it's unstable, becoming otherwise. Anicca, this characteristic of not permanent, not certain. This room, the insight, meditation, society, meditation hall, Fans gently turning, temperature shifting, people coming and going and the heating creaking and changing, the light brightening and subsiding. External forms, internal forms, this what we call me, powerful territory to open to, sensitive to, this body, this breath, oh my breath, it's, it's, it's pretty good. My breath's pretty good. It's smooth. I've been working on it. Sounds like a thing, doesn't it? But my pretty good breath, okay, when you get close to it, it's swelling and in breath's gone, subsiding. Swelling, subsiding. When we actually get up close to this pretty good breath, it's there and it's gone, it's anicca. And anything that's anicca, the Buddha said, is it fair to say that something which is anicca and changing, can you really call that sukha? It's not dukkha, it's sukha. Means, is it really happiness? Unalterable, unshakable, satisfying. It's there and then it's gone. Is it, if it's of the nature to decay, to be there and dissolve. So when we actually see that something is not really a thing, it's anicca, changing, we can say it's dukkha. It's not a value judgment against it, but it is, it is just a phenomenon. The nature of whatever perception can latch on to and call my breath, my energy. She's pretty good. Been working on it. The energy. Similarly, we have a feeling where the energy and the feeling tone. Feeling is like valence. It's like a, a certain... Polarity, when it's pleasing, when there's liking something, it's like pleasing valence, the energy. Hmm. But if we go close, we'll notice that shifting, changing, and then when 
when there's fatigue in the bones throughout everything, barely sit up. No backrest up here. Have one wants, but but that that chi it was flowing, and I knew I'd broken through. <laughs> now, if if there if there's the hearkening back, then we're trying to shift that painful feeling. That's one of these boulders, isn't it? When the feeling is there, and we're wanting it to be different. It's heavy, suddenly becomes heavy. Or it's what the Buddha called the second arrow. There's already the pain of painful feeling. But on top of it, we've added a second arrow that's been created. By what? By it shouldn't be. He's trying to lift that thing, shift it. It's not bad to work on our energy, but we, if there's a, a distress that's happening rather than hating it, we might, in any moment, is there dukkha here? And there's different ways we can respond. We can just want it all to disappear and hope it'll all black out and put our head under the pillow. It's a method, sometimes has its place, but we can, ah, there's dukkha open to that fighting, that distress, that being with pain or grief when we don't really want it to be there, that we're in the territory of the first noble truth and the second noble truth as we begin to notice how it's perpetuated, this wanting, not wanting. And in a moment, any moment, whatever the circumstance, however piled up in debris, layers of stuff that I have got to work out. I mean, we're not talking little bits. We're talking big time stuff. I've got this problem and that problem and my lust problem and not to mention my aversion problem and my jealousy problem, which I've kept quite hidden, but... (laughs) Not like them. They seem to be happy with everybody and I just want... If I see somebody else doing good, I'm just going to... And there's just so many. I mean, you know, this... Fine, you talking about opening to suffering, but I've got eons of work to... (sighs) Even right in the debris and the perception that we have got so much... Talk about those tracks going out into the distance. It's so far away. In even a moment, even a moment when you're struggling with a boulder and wanting it to be different, even in a moment when you let it be, there is relief. You can still say, that thing is... Or as Ajahn Chah would say, is it really heavy? Only when you try to lift it. In a moment. 
when there's this is how it is. Even with a pain or a swirl of thoughts that's saying it's impossible when they are trying to shift it in a moment of relinquishing. Someone asks the question, what does namo mean? Namo means I return my life. When there's the sense of this is me and mine and we're trying to make something last that can't last, when we realize it's anicca, it's changing the feelings, the perceptions, the everything. And what's changing is by nature, it's, it's dukkha if we grasp it. And it's anatta, it's not a self, it's not mine. We, yeah, we talk about my body, my life. It's a way of talking. And namo, when we, when we give it back to nature, we're not talking about trashing, throwing away. We're talking about softening, a momentary thing where there's letting be. We might have the opportunity to touch peace, that third truth. Fatigue. One can be really tired deeply. And when one's wrestling with it, it's heavy. And in a moment when it is what it is, it doesn't even have a name then. That can be peace. It's a sensation. Even the swirling chaos of all the thoughts that are telling us of all that I have to do when it's really me and mine and I've got to try to sort it out. It's difficult. In a moment of it, when it becomes, whoa, there's a swirl. Thinking, which is unstable. Just dumb. All these swirl of feelings. The moment of recognizing it's changing. It's not me and mine. It just is what it is. There can be a relief, a touching into the ending of gripping and pushing away. And then there's times when we can't let go. It just, oh gosh, I'm struggling and it shouldn't be and I know I should let go and why can't I let go? And you got, I've heard enough about letting go and I'm bloody sick of letting go and I wish I could let go and I wish I could cut my head off and roll it like a bowling ball. <laughs> Down the aisle, out into the snow. <laughs> Then might that'll see what the thinking does then. <sighs> but even if we're suffering and can't let go, just remember noble truths, as Ajahn Chah said, you know, even knowing it, and I love this about these check-ins, the honesty, such a important and beautiful spiritual quality when people are sharing just from what's happening. 
we, we, we should really acknowledge the preciousness and value of that because there's no way to escape from the prison cell until there's a recognition, hey, I'm locked up here. That's huge reality check. Ajahn Chah would say 70% is just even knowing you're clinging. Okay, so you can't let go. But you know it, and then it's like a spasm. Okay, one practices being without suffering, and little by little sensing the, the muscles, in this case the internal volitional muscles that hold on, that are maybe frightened of letting go. It's a noble truth, dukkha. Noble truth to inc- contemplate the origin, the, the clinging, the aversion. And in time, don't worry, there'll, there'll be the, 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 the recognition of a, of a softening for moments. You know, clinch back up. A softening, a letting be, a namo of returning. We'll get the sense that we're... Oh, if I let go, I'll be nothing, I'll be... Yes, but that, that shifts and changes and dissolves into a letting go and resting at home where we've always already been. We're, we're letting go into the ground, the most truly trustworthy suchness. Home. These words... Descriptions the Buddha gave about our nature, the harbor, the safe place, the restful, the peaceful. This is our nature. Path. Just what we've been doing. It's too complicated, overwhelming. Oh gosh, there's all this, there's suffering, ardent suffering, ending of suffering. Just come back to samatha, primary relationship of just being here and now and simplifying it. Oh gosh, how am I going to figure it out? Just one step, one breath. It's that activity of mindfully connecting to the body. Okay, the body's changing, yes. But its changes are more slow, more rhythmic. If our first, refu- first foundation of mindfulness was thought, because thought then whips into the future, harkens back to the past, it just goes so all over the place. We can so quickly get tangled. The body is always in present time. And the in and the out breath, he didn't just choose that by accident. Especially in a beautiful place like this, when we breathe in, we're reminded, sense of self feels, I am separate, and oh, what am I, I'm going to work it out. We, this me is always blessed. We're surrounded by an ocean of vitality, especially with the good air here. We can receive from the trees. We can breathe out whenever we want. There's no meters on you. There's no, you've, you've used up, you've been breathing an awful lot. 
I just don't know. Don't you think about anybody else? In and out whenever we want. We're not on the freeway here, relatively speaking, where there's no... And we're, we're with others that are committed to a peaceful path. So all these ways are, can help soothe us. We can breathe in when we want, breathe out when we want. We can feel the ground supporting us. We can practice these moments of steadying. When we're trying to figure everything out, just say, not right now, right now, I'm just steadying. This is the essence of the calming practice. It has some wisdom in it, some, because if we try too hard, we just get exhausted, try, if our effort's too little, we'll just fall asleep. All good calming practice has the wisdom element in it. The image the Buddha gave was uh, when, when he tried too hard, his, his concentration fell apart. He said it's like holding a quail, a bird. That's alive. It's dynamic. If you, if you hold it too hard, he says, it dies right then and there. We're holding our life. Too tight, it kills. Too loose and sluggish, it flies away. So we're tuning. So we, we, we can listen in. And, and for sometimes it's all, it's what we need to do just to be simple and step. Resting. If we're resting, still try to be with sensations of the body. And on the out-breath, feel the ground holding us. Each out-breath, we let go, but steady the attention on the sensations the ground and of the body, resting, savoring, practicing being content with simplicity, widening from time to time the awareness to include the whole body so that the sensations can mingle with each other, so that we get a little more skill at gatheredness, calming. Insights not far away. You can make whole schools the vipassana practitioners that make fun of those samatha calming people, they just get lost in bliss. <laughs> no insight there. I don't know that many people that just get lost in bliss. Then the samatha people think, oh, those vipassana people, they think they're doing vipassana, really. They're just thinking they're vipassaninis. <laughs> they're just thinking they're doing all this wise, reflect the wise reflectionists. We do samatha. We do the real insight stuff. Lost in bliss, if you like. (laughs) The Buddha taught the two are close together, like two oxen working in tandem, or like the candle in the light. You don't get an enduring light without a candle. Or Ajahn Chah described it like a knife that has... The back edge is thicker, it's for strength, and then that can be sharpened where it can cut through, but it's a whole knife. Or it's like the back and the front of a hand, it's a whole hand, you only see maybe one at a time. 
or even sometimes if, when he really made his image simple, Ajahn Chah said, well, it was like a log. One end's calm, the other end's vipassana. <laughs> you pick up that end of the log, you're going to get to the other one. It's one mind. And when we just calming down and doing being very simple, then even the slightest adjustment as you breathe in and out and notice change. You're still pretty calm, but once beginning then not just to be on calm, just noticing the breath changing. And if it's changing, it's dukkha, meaning it can't be grasped. It's not me and mine, it's a part of nature. So today, in the walking, calming, and then just slightly adjusting, notice the change of the light, change of the sound, change of the feeling. And even when there's dukkha, pain, or not wanting, the change of that. Maybe even for a moment, feeling the dukkha, it's so heavy, and even for a moment, practice remembering namo. It is just what it is. Relinquishing, letting it be, will have touch into peace, which the Buddha said is always, here and now. Always inviting us. No special pass at the door. No special designation. It's our, our true home. blessed day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.